everyone, and welcome to The Odo Approach, a podcast created by medical students for medical students to teach you about all things otolaryngology. I'm your host, Aileen, and today we're going to talk about the parathyroid glands and their physiology. Tag along for a discussion about this common otolaryngology topic and stick around to hear some high-yield tips at the end. The parathyroid glands are two pairs of small, flattened, oval-shaped glands that usually lie posterior to the thyroid in the middle aspect of the anterior neck. Most people have four parathyroid glands, although approximately 5% of people have more than four, and some people have less than four. Additionally, ectopic parathyroids, meaning parathyroid tissue in atypical locations, can result from aberrant migration during development. The main function of the parathyroids is to regulate calcium and phosphorus levels within the body. The chief cells of the parathyroids do this by producing a polypeptide hormone called parathyroid hormone, or PTH, which acts to increase serum calcium levels. This is achieved by stimulating the release of calcium from bones into the bloodstream, absorption of calcium from food in the intestines, and conservation of calcium by the kidneys. We will get into the details of all of this in a bit. So basically, it is low calcium levels that leads to an increase in PTH, which subsequently leads to an increase in serum calcium. This is all controlled by a negative feedback system in which calcium and vitamin D bind to receptors on the parathyroid glands, inhibiting the release of PTH. More specifically, the calcium-sensing receptor, which is a G-coupled protein receptor on the surface of the parathyroid chief cells, will recognize and respond to low serum calcium, which will then cause them to activate PTH translation and secretion. This control of calcium in the body through feedback loops is incredibly important because calcium is essential for the heart, kidneys, bones, and nervous system to function properly. So what are the more specific effects of PTH in the body? Well, as mentioned, PTH exerts most of its effects at the level of the bones, the kidneys, and the gastrointestinal system. Let's start out with its effect on the skeleton. It is important to realize that although your bones may seem extremely static or never changing, they're actually constantly being metabolically broken down and rebuilt. It is also important to know that the two main cells involved in this process are osteoblasts and osteoclasts. Osteoclasts cause the resorption of bone by degradation of hydroxyapatite which is a calcium phosphate mineral that is a major component of bone and teeth. Osteoblasts, on the other hand, synthesize and secrete bone matrix. You can remember the function of these two main cell types by remembering that osteoblasts with a B build bone and osteoclasts with a C consume bone. PTH inhibits osteoblasts and stimulates osteoclasts, thereby breaking down the bone and causing the release of calcium. PTH does this by binding to receptors on osteoblasts, which stimulates the release of receptor activator of nuclear factor kappa B ligand. But that's a little hard to remember. So most of the time, this is just referred to as rank L, or rank ligand. And this allows osteoblasts to differentiate into osteoclasts, again, increasing bone resorption if serum calcium levels are low. Next, parathyroid hormone increases the serum calcium levels in multiple different ways at the level of the kidneys. Firstly, it directly increases calcium resorption at the ascending loop of Henle, the distal convoluted tubule, and the collecting ducts of the kidneys. It does this by upregulating calcium transporters. Secondly, PTH also increases phosphate excretion in the urine. This indirectly increases calcium serum levels because phosphate ions in serum will form insoluble salts with calcium, thereby decreasing plasma calcium. So therefore, less phosphate ions means less salt forms, which means more ionized calcium in the blood. Finally, PTH causes the kidneys to upregulate the synthesis of alpha-1 hydroxylase, which is an enzyme needed to produce the biologically active form of vitamin D, called 125-dihydroxycholecalciferol, or calcitriol. 
Vitamin D is extremely important for the homeostasis of calcium and phosphorus, and in the kidney, vitamin D increases calcium and phosphorus reabsorption. Now finally, how does PTH exert its effects in the gastrointestinal system? PTH does not directly affect the small intestine. However, the downstream effects of PTH on the synthesis of vitamin D are seen here. Vitamin D receptors are present along the entirety of the gut epithelium, and when they're stimulated, they increase absorption of calcium through both the transcellular and the paracellular pathways. So what are the two main categorizations of parathyroid dysfunction, now that we've talked about the normal physiology? Well, hyperparathyroidism is inappropriately high PTH levels, and hypoparathyroidism is inappropriately low PTH levels. So, hyperparathyroidism can lead to extremely elevated levels of serum calcium, which should now make sense to you because you know that the main function of PTH is to increase serum calcium levels. So, how will your patient present in this case? Well, they may complain of nausea, vomiting, kidney stones, constipation, bone pain, or display some psychosis or altered mental state. A very common way to memorize these symptoms is stones, bones, groans, and psychiatric overtones. Usually, the etiology of hyperparathyroidism is considered to be either primary, secondary, or tertiary. Primary hyperparathyroidism is the most common of the three, and it refers to an abnormality of the gland itself. This means that something is causing the gland to overproduce or oversecrete PTH. In this case, your patient may be displaying some or all of the symptoms of hypercalcemia. And additionally, it is important to note that their blood work will show elevated PTH and calcium and low phosphorus levels, also known as hypophosphatemia. Some examples of things that could cause the parathyroids to oversecrete PTH include an adenoma, which is a benign tumor that originates from granular tissue, or hyperplasia of the gland. A parathyroid adenoma is the most common cause, although rarely the cause is parathyroid carcinoma. Of course, in these instances, the PTH level is usually sky high. Once you have biochemical confirmation of primary hyperparathyroidism, imaging is ordered to facilitate localization of the suspected adenoma, the most common etiology, which accounts for 85% of patients with primary hyperparathyroidism. While cervical ultrasound is the least costly, when combined with a Sestamibi scan, usually with technetium TC99M radioisotope, this combination is the most cost-effective strategy. Secondary hyperparathyroidism usually occurs in response to chronic hypocalcemia. So basically, if the body is unable to maintain high enough levels of calcium, the parathyroids will be overstimulated to try and produce enough PTH to keep serum calcium levels high enough. Some examples of reasons this may happen include in a patient with chronic kidney disease who are unable to resorb enough calcium, or in patients with a vitamin D deficiency, which could also cause them to be unable to gain enough calcium from their diet. Of those, chronic kidney disease is the most common by far. So, what will your patient's blood work look like if they have secondary hyperparathyroidism? Well, it depends on the etiology. In chronic kidney disease, PTH will be elevated because there will be decreased calcium and elevated phosphorus. But in a vitamin D deficiency, there will be elevated PTH and decreased calcium and phosphate. Remember, this should make sense to you now because you know that vitamin D is needed for the absorption of both calcium and phosphorus. Finally, there's tertiary hyperparathyroidism. This form of hyperparathyroidism is the rarest of the three and occurs when the long-term secondary hyperparathyroidism has been corrected. Basically, because of chronically low levels of calcium, the parathyroids will try and compensate to the point that there is hyperplasia or enlargement of the glands. Eventually, the parathyroid glands begin to act autonomously and overproduce and secrete PTH. 
Then, even if the underlying condition is treated and calcium levels are no longer low, the parathyroids will still be producing very high levels of PTH. In this case, your patient will have extremely high PTH levels and calcium and phosphate will also be high. In patients with acute hypercalcemia, you should firstly try and correct the electrolyte levels, as this can be very life-threatening. Administering fluids is extremely important. Calcium-lowering medications such as diuretics or bisphosphonates may also be used. In terms of long-term management, surgery is the most common treatment for hyperparathyroidism and can result in a cure in the majority of cases. Usually, the surgeon will remove the glands which are causing the issue. That may be one or two with hyperplasia or an adenoma. If all four of the parathyroid glands are affected, the surgeon will likely remove three of the glands and a portion of the fourth. They will not remove all four of the glands in that case because some parathyroid tissue will still be needed for calcium homeostasis for the remainder of the patient's life. Since we've now discussed overactive parathyroid glands or hyperparathyroidism, it would make sense to now talk about underactive parathyroid glands or hypoparathyroidism. Usually, endocrinologists are more heavily involved in the care of patients with hypoparathyroidism than otolaryngologists. However, for completeness, we will cover it here. Hypoparathyroidism is more rare than hyperparathyroidism, and it can be chronic or it can resolve transiently. Remember that in hypoparathyroidism, PTH levels will be abnormally low, so serum calcium levels will also be low because PTH is needed to increase serum calcium levels. Parathesia, weakness, muscle cramps or tetany, and seizures can often occur due to hypocalcemia. Additionally, there are two clinical tests that can be used to identify hypocalcemia. Firstly, a positive Schwaztek sign is when the cheek is lightly tapped just anterior to the tragus of the ear and the face contracts on the ipsilateral side. This is a positive test because it means that the facial nerve, or cranial nerve 7, is hyperexcitable due to hypocalcemia. Trousseau's sign is when the muscle spasms of the hand and forearm are induced by inflating a blood pressure cuff above the systolic blood pressure. This occurs following the occlusion of the brachial artery because this allows hypocalcemia to induce nerve excitability. The most common cause of hypoparathyroidism is iatrogenic, meaning that it happens as a result of medical intervention. In this case, the specific iatrogenic cause of hypoparathyroidism is damage to or accidental removal of the parathyroid glands during thyroid, parathyroid, laryngeal, and pharyngeal surgeries. There are also autoimmune disorders, which can cause damage or destruction of one or more of the parathyroid glands. For example, autoimmune polyendocrine syndrome type 1 is due to a mutation of the autoimmune regulatory gene. Additionally, DeGeorge syndrome, which is secondary to a chromosome 22q11 deletion, is characterized by failure in the formation of the thymus and parathyroid glands. Some of the manifestations of DeGeorge syndrome includes chronic infections, cleft lip and or palate, cardiac defects, craniofacial abnormalities, and of course, hypoparathyroidism. In general, hypoparathyroidism will be treated by endocrinology, but given that the most common cause of it is iatrogenic, it's very important that otolaryngologists know how to recognize and treat this issue, especially acutely, for example, post-thyroid surgery. In fact, the incidence of post-operative temporary hyperparathyroidism ranges between 1 and 30%. Luckily, the rates of post-operative permanent hypoparathyroidism reportedly ranges from only 0.9 to 1.6%. Acute management of hypocalcemia requires replacement of the patient's calcium. Remember, if the patient has hypoparathyroidism, you will need to replace their vitamin D, and this is typically given in the form of D3, which goes by the name of rocalcitrol. If the patient is symptomatic, 
or has a corrected calcium level of less than 1.8 millimoles per liter, generally intravenous calcium needs to be given, usually in the form of calcium gluconate. Oral calcium can be given for less severe hypocalcemia and when the patient is asymptomatic. This is typically in the form of oral calcium carbonate. Now for some clinical pearls. The embryology of the parathyroid glands has important implications in its expected anatomical location, particularly as it relates to the recurrent laryngeal nerve. The inferior parathyroid glands are derivatives of the third pharyngeal pouch, while the superior parathyroid glands are derivatives of the fourth pharyngeal pouch. The inferior parathyroid glands therefore travel a greater distance to its usual final location. The associated nerve of the fourth pharyngeal pouch includes the vagus nerve, or cranial nerve 10. Typically, the inferior parathyroid glands will lie superficial to the recurrent laryngeal nerve, a branch of cranial nerve 10, while the superior parathyroid glands lie deep to the recurrent laryngeal nerve. Another clinical pearl includes that when you have a patient with symptomatic hypercalcemia, secondary to primary hyperparathyroidism, surgical treatment, or in other words, a parathyroidectomy, is indicated and offers a chance for cure. Commonly, clinicians will use the National Institute of Health guidelines for deciding when to operate, These guidelines have been updated multiple times and are available in our show notes. We would like to extend our sincerest thanks to the St. John Regional Hospital Department of Surgery within the Horizon Health Network for their very generous support. Please head to our website at www.theodoapproach.com for our show notes and to sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date with our latest episodes. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast and we hope you'll be back for more.